trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a first-time listener, first of all, congratulations on having the courage to click that button and uh, and hear what I have to say. This is a program for the truth curious, meaning people who are searching for truth, better understanding of the world around them, not so they know who to be angry at or who or what to be against, but because they realize there are some things that really matter. And frankly, there are just not that many sources we can turn to for good, credible, timely information. Now, I'm not going to say that I have cornered the market on truth. I clearly haven't. But I do have some great resources for wrong thinkers like you and me. And uh, I'm happy to offer those up on a daily basis. This show brought to you in part by great sponsors like GarageDoorProServices.com, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and HSLAmmo.com. So there's a lot of talk going on right now, and and I'm really caught up in it about, uh, okay, now that it's clear that the wheels have come off the narrative and all the stuff that was done to us in the name of COVID, you know, and the lockdowns and the mandates and the whole, uh, what is it, the, the pandemic of the unvaccinated. You know, where we were a year ago versus where we are now, very, very different place. And as people's eyes have started to open and they realize, holy cow, those folks in charge didn't have a clue. There was no science backing up their decisions to pull the plug on economies or tell people they were not essential. And it's hard not to take that personal. That's the most direct attack on our freedoms that we have seen, most of us, in our lifetimes. And it's very serious stuff. Now, having said that, I'm starting to hear some of the uh, narrative managers. Well, you know, we were all in the dark and we should probably, you know, we should probably declare kind of a COVID amnesty for whatever anybody said or did during that time. Because, well, we were all in a bad place and we just didn't know what we were were dealing with. And I have a real hard time with that because, (laughs) frankly, I don't know when and where uh, forgiveness should come in. Now, thankfully, there are cooler heads out there. Brian Allman who runs the uh, Gem State Brian uh, Substack, I thought had a really great take on after such knowledge, what forgiveness? Should there be consequences for the architects of the lockdowns? I wanted to share a little bit of his essay on his Substack account. He says, This morning a journalist named Emily Oster published a piece in The Atlantic titled, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Oster's subtitle says, We need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. Now, he says, the answer from all right-thinking people should be an immediate and vehement no. Remember what they did. In the name of public health, they unleashed their most vile totalitarian fantasies. Our leaders, left and right, looked at the draconian lockdowns in China and said, that's a great idea. They shut down small businesses while big corporations were allowed to remain open. They shut down churches and arrested parishioners when they prayed outside without masks. They arrested moms for taking their children to the park. School children were forced to sit in front of a screen for hours each day, isolated from their friends. They told you to stay home, but cheered when rioters burned cities in the name of George Floyd. You were not allowed to say goodbye to your dying grandparents, and you were banned from giving them a funeral. 
but the criminal Floyd had a gold-plated casket that traveled the country for political photo ops. Mayors and governors enforced travel bans but gave exceptions to politicians and celebrities. They mandated an untested injection, and if you refused, they called you a murderer. They outright banned alternative treatments such as ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that showed promise because they were outside the control of Big Pharma. In some supposedly free countries like Canada and Australia, people were detained against their will if the government even suspected them of having COVID-19. And they did all this for a virus that has a greater than 99% survival rate. Now, Brian Allman says, look, make no mistake, the people at the top were not worried about COVID. Rather, they saw an excuse to make their totalitarian dreams a reality. If they're not held accountable for what they did, they will do it again. Whether in the name of public health or climate change or stopping racism or gun violence. The same people who ridiculed us, who hoped for our deaths because we protested their lockdowns and mandates, suddenly want to call it water under the bridge. He says, no, there must be an accountability. Imagine anyone, someone in any position making such awful decisions. A football coach benching his star player in the Super Bowl. A policeman shooting an an obviously unarmed person. A CEO going on TV to say his product sucks. All of them would be fired for their mistakes, but government officials, people with the power to destroy our lives on a whim, should be left off the hook, or let off the hook, rather? No. Oster and her ilk have not learned anything from the last two and a half years, and they continue to think they deserve to rule our society. Oster wrote in her piece, in some instances, the the right people were right for the wrong reasons. No mea culpas, no humility. No apologies, just eternal hubris. They want to simply sweep their evil actions under the rug and pretend that they never happened. No. He says President Trump was right about the lab leak. Social media censors were wrong. Governor DeSantis was right about keeping the state open and the self-appointed dictators at the CDC were wrong. Parents were right about keeping schools open and the teacher union bosses were wrong. Vaccine skeptics were right to trust in natural natural immunity. And Bill Gates and Joe Biden were wrong. We did not face a winter of disease and death. Dr. Ryan Cole was right, and his ankle biters at the Idaho Capitol Sun were wrong. We were right, they were wrong, yet they think they deserve to stay in power with the authority to do it all over again should they choose. He says, no, never. Many folks, he says, that he follows on Twitter had similar reactions. Michael Malice called out Oster in no uncertain terms. He said, literal demons walk among us. Artist George Alexopoulos had harsh words for the lockdown Nazis. Nah, something about threatening our friends and families' jobs if they don't cover their faces and take an injection that could kill us, otherwise possibly be forced into quarantine camps, leaves a bit of an aftertaste. Please go F yourselves forever. I will never forget this. He says, one of my new favorite, uh, favorite new Twitter follows, this is... It looks Cyrillic to me, so I'm guessing it's somebody Russian. Explained why we simply cannot forgive and forget. No, we cannot allow the experts in the expert class to hide behind. We meant, well, this is an endemic problem with the expert class. Only accountability will stop it. That means careers ending, lives ruined, reputations destroyed. Scottish internet troll Count Dankula mocked the request for detente. Please, bro, 
I know we fired people from their jobs and exiled them from society, bro. We didn't know, bro. And I know we arrested old women for feeding pigeons and trampled people with horses and raided their homes, but we were misinformed, bro. We were only following orders, bro. Brian Almond points out, in the Roman Senate, the Senate had the power, in the Roman Republic, rather, the Senate had the power to appoint a dictator during times of crisis, one who could cut through the red tape, do what needed to be done to save his people. Our leaders took on that authority during the spring of 2020, claiming that the pandemic necessitated it. But time has proven that their tyranny was unwarranted. What do you think the Roman people would do to a dictator who abused his power? What should we do to ours? Should they be removed from their positions of power? Should they be fined? Should they be jailed? He says one way or another, they must be held to account for what they did to this country. If not then they will surely do this again and again and again, and we will wake up one day to discover that America is no different than communist China. Now, I know there are those who'd say, well, I don't know, that sounds pretty harsh. Frankly, Brian, to me, has one of the most reasonable takes on this possible. I really like his approach. I think he's very thoughtful in how he he goes after these topics. This is not just, you know, venting. I find myself actually more on the verge of venting, but, but I'm still... I'm angry about the way that people were treated. And frankly, I got to admit, I did not suffer that much abuse, or at least I I don't feel like I took a whole lot of arrows for my stance. I mean, there were times where it was uncomfortable. There were times where, you know, being the only or one of the only people in church who wasn't wearing a mask, it, it was really uncomfortable. But for the most part, I was still able to to do things on my own terms and and, and part of that's, you know, I, I'm an independent contractor. I, 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 I wasn't dependent on, well, I got to follow this guideline if I want to keep my job. Not everybody had that option. But I haven't forgotten the people who, you know, every unvaccinated death, they, they just took glee in it. Say, say, we told you. It's funny how quiet they are when, you know, otherwise healthy people, athletes included, are suddenly dropping dead or having to retire from Uh, lifelong heart problems as a result of uh, the vaccine. By the way, I'm not suggesting everybody gets that. I'm just saying that's a very real risk. And the people who were like, whoa, I don't know if I want to take this or not, were absolutely justified in exercising or withholding their consent as they felt necessary. So, yes, I agree with Brian Allman. I think, uh, you know, forgiveness is an option at some point, but it cannot come until... There are serious mea culpas, people who actually own up to the extent of what was done and and start trying to do something to fix it. Stepping down from power could be one of those things they could do to help fix it. I'll include a link to the article. You should consider subscribing to uh, Brian's Substack account. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You've heard me talk about garage door pros. And if you live in southwestern Utah, meaning St. George or Cedar City or even Mesquite, Nevada or Colorado City, Arizona, this is the company you should see for installation, service and repair of garage doors. It's a local company. They will be there for you with quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you. And, of course, they do commercial as well as residential service. So give them a shout. 
435-525-2773. Better still, log on to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. Check out what their customers are saying about them. These folks know how to take care of their customers. That's why I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Well, the biggest question that's going to be answered in next week's midterm elections is, will we see the beginning of authentic accountability in the results? I'm seeing a lot of parents that are, you know, righteously (laughs) revolting against, you know, the politicians and the schools and so forth and everything that uh, that they have uh, been put through in the last couple of years. I want to share an article from Matthew Boos. This is from AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. Why the Democrats are already screaming in protest. And this actually puts a lot of things into perspective about the, the current meltdown that the political left is having right now. He says, it's becoming clear that Democrats will pay a political price for the horribly abusive way they've treated the United States these last couple of years. Perhaps it was unwise of them to stake electoral fortunes on a narcissistic belief in their own virtue. But like Wyoming Republican Liz Cheney, they just can't help themselves. Their closing argument to voters, set aside your parochial concerns with the cost of living and your family's safety, peasant, and pledge allegiance to us. That is your duty to democracy. Now, moral blackmail is Democrats' bread and butter, but this time it isn't working. Their rhetoric has become just too preposterous. How is democracy threatened when the people peacefully choose new leaders? Democrats can't say. Anyway, they're the last people who should be giving lectures on democracy. As Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake boldly reminded us the other day, Democrats were election deniers long before they concocted the term as a childish libel against the right. He says, what Democrats really fear is being held accountable for the miserable new normal they foisted on the country. Let's recap, shall we? Democrats successfully cut a path of destruction to the White House in 2020 by stoking panic over COVID and outrage over George Floyd's death. They crashed the economy with totalitarian lockdowns that ripped up the social fabric and imprisoned law-abiding people in isolation even as Democrats emboldened criminals to take control of society with mostly peaceful riots that terrorized communities and demoralized police. A trampled electorate cried uncle and responded to Biden's misleading promises of normalcy. Rather than keep their word, Democrats exploited the country's goodwill and moved without delay to establish a radical new political order. The revolution of 2020 became the start of a new normal of violence and dysfunction presided over by a draconian and aggressively ideological government. He says in the new normal, the people are lectured daily by preening incompetent busybodies about the extremism of anyone who opposes gender affirming care. That is the mutilation of perfectly healthy children by politically compromised doctors. As the people become poorer, less safe, less free, the, bodies pile, the busy bodies pile on with the crude, patronizing propaganda that comes out of their mouths. They tell us the economy is strong and the border secure despite what everyone can see for themselves. Between empty boasts, they busy themselves finding the scapegoat of the weak. As Election Day approaches, Democrats have taken their gaslighting to new extremes of shameless revisionism. The same people who pushed vaccine mandates and defund the police are audaciously posing as the champions of bodily autonomy, the rule of law, and the common man against the ravages of Big Pharma, while encouraging voters to share in their myopic fixation with January 6th. 
Biden is already issuing grave warnings of what MAGA Republicans will do to an economy that he has already tanked. Now, hypocrisy is normal in politics, but this level of hypocrisy is a warning sign that the people in power have lost all sense of loyalty and respect for the people and will stop at absolutely nothing to stay in control. We need look no further than Biden's cruel and gratuitous pandemic of the unvaccinated hate campaign, which made millions of people with perfectly rational concerns about the COVID shots into second-class citizens overnight. Biden just dropped this big lie the moment it ceased to be politically expedient and then moved on as if nothing had ever happened. Matthew Booth says, It would be too kind to say that Democrats have mismanaged the country. They have beaten the living daylights out of it. They know this too, which is why their messaging has gotten so hysterical and authoritarian. They have nothing to offer except more sociopathic pity for criminals, more reckless spending, more anti-white racism, more tyrannical government control over families and their children. There will be no relief, moderation, or normalcy as long as they are in charge. As if to prove this, corrupt bureaucrats in the Centers for Disease Control just overruled public opinion to make potentially harmful COVID vaccines mandatory for millions of kids who have no need of them. Meantime, Illinois will become the first state in the country to abolish cash bail in January. So he concludes by saying, the good news is it looks like there will be a peaceful transfer of power after November 8th. The question is, will the Democrats accept the will of the people? Excellent article there from Matthew Boos. He's a Mount Vernon fellow of the Center for American Greatness and a staff writer and weekly columnist at the Conservative Institute. That's a pretty good recap, too, of some of the things that we've been subjected to. And this is not just, well, let's, all right, let's get together and talk about our gripes. Pull up a chair and we'll gripe about this. This is what we need to remember. When someone says, I don't understand why you guys seem so upset about this. I mean, we just did what we had to do. Because maybe at some level we understand that all of this matters. That a person's freedom matters. Their informed consent matters. Their ability to be able to provide for their family matters. Some bureaucrat dictating, well, you're essential, you're not essential, you know. Sorry, that is that is a huge overstep of government authority. And the pushback has to take place. Or it's going to happen again. Speaking of pushback, too, I'm also including an article from uh, Joanna Williams. This is from uh, Spiked Online, which is actually a British or a UK publication. But the title is, America's Parents Are Revolting. No, not in that way. They're revolting against schools indoctrinating their children. And Joanna points out, election, education rather has, re- has rarely been a major electoral issue in the U.S., but as we approach these November midterms, the state of the nation's schools follows very closely behind the economy and crime as voters' key concerns. And parents are worried about far more than falling academic standards. They're angry that teachers are using the classroom to promote their own narrow political views. So parents opposed to woke indoctrination in the schools are organizing. And they may even prove to be a decisive force in the elections. She gives some great examples of this. Parents are upset about what's happening in America's schools. And don't be surprised if it spills over into the ballot box. 
Where I live in Idaho, I, I see uh, there, you know, the media managers and, and, and some of the politicians whose job is to help blunt criticism about this woke indoctrination. They pretend, well, it doesn't really happen. Or uh, somebody complained once they thought they saw something that made them feel bad. But, you know, we did this investigation and we couldn't find any evidence of it whatsoever. And it's a lie. It's deception. They'll take a very narrow definition. Well, you know, they're complaining about critical race theory, but in reality, it's not really critical race theory because they're using this very narrow definition. But when you call it social-emotional learning or something like that, they're getting the very same tenets, which are everything that came before us was wrong. You are guilty of some kind of original sin by virtue of the color of your skin. You can guess who that's aimed at, people with privilege. Yeah, it's still happening. And here's the kicker. Even if it's not yet entrenched in our local schools in Idaho, you can clearly see it becoming entrenched in other schools around the country. It's just a matter of time. So parents who are preemptively moving to say, no, that's not something I want my kids being taught. They are well within their rights. And it is their prerogative to stand up and say, that's not what our schools are here for. Got to be on your toes, though. The deception out there is very real. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to give a shout out to... uh, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also HSLAmmo.com. You can check out those links on my uh, sponsor links at my, at my website, TheBrianHydeShow.com. You can also subscribe to my show notes, which I send out on a daily basis to my subscribers. So you're going to be hearing a lot more talk about CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies. Now, you may not know much about it. You may not even have much interest, but... If you need money, if you spend money, I think that covers pretty much all of us, you better pay attention because CBDCs are quickly approaching. And one of the things that's going to be used to sell this to us is the convenience. Oh, it's so wonderful. Look how convenient this is. Everything is just right there in one place. And why you don't even have to swipe your card anymore. You just, you know, it's a chip. And, you know, the chip reader can tell exactly what's going on. Deduct from your account as you walk out of the grocery store. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, Jeff Thomas says... Beware the Pied Piper of CBDCs, and especially beware of where they may lead us. He says, we all know the story. The Pied Piper has a magic flute that, when played by the Piper, saves the people of Hamlin from a rat epidemic. And when the people of the town fail to pay him for his services, he then uses the flute to attract their children away. So in modern nomenclature, a Pied Piper is described as a metaphor for a person who attracts a following through charisma or false promises. That leads us to a discussion of central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. Jeff Thomas says, as recently as 10 years ago, when writing on the possibility of digital currencies uh, was being introduced, the idea was so novel, or perhaps so abhorrent, that he says, my predictions on the subject were considered fanciful. Yet by 2016, announcements were being made by governments that digital currencies were under consideration. And in the brief time since then, the concept has caught on worldwide. 11 countries have now launched them, and another 87 are either researching them or developing them. But why is it that bank depositors would accept the introduction of CBDCs? Well, Jeff Thomas says, on paper, they sound great. 
No more trips to the ATM, no more need for credit cards, no more worrying about carrying around cash, no more purse snatchers. You carry all your savings on a cell phone and do so safely. All crime could end as any criminal would leave a trail of transactions for banks to monitor. These, of course, are the promises being touted by the Latter-day Pied Piper, the false promises mentioned in the definition above. So what's the attraction for governments and bankers so eager to go digital? He says, well, the answer for bankers is that they'll have the opportunity to phase out banknotes. Most activities on the retail floor will be outmoded. Since all transactions would be digital, they'll all be performed by bank clerks on computers without ever having to face customers. Additionally, the depositors will no longer be able to store currency elsewhere. Depositors will be at the mercy of the banks, as they'll no longer be able to make even the smallest transaction without passing it through the bank. So this not only makes it possible for banks to raise their transaction fees at will, but it also gives banks the, the ability to decide what transactions the depositor is allowed to make, as the depositor may no longer have any alternative transaction capability. Now, of course, many depositors will attempt to turn to cryptos, and there can be little doubt that those who don't presently see cryptos as monetary freedom soon will. But it's likely that as cryptos become the solution to bypassing banks' increased dominance of currency, banks would freeze or close the accounts of depositors who are discovered to be dealing in cryptos. The depositor will then have to assess whether he can carry on his daily financial life without his bank account. After all, will his grocer or the station where he buys fuel for his vehicle also risk the freezing or closing of their accounts? Might those who seek freedom of commerce be frozen out of the day-to-day -day purchases? It remains to be seen how this will play out. And while we're at it, what will the benefits to governments be? Well, governments will not only have greater power over the movement of currency without the cost of producing banknotes, but they'll also have the ability to require banks to reveal all transactional information on depositors. At the very least, this will mean the ability to eliminate voluntary income tax as taxation will now be possible by direct debit. It will also need to not, will not need to be annual, but could be carried out monthly with each bank statement and rates subject to frequent unannounced change. Further, governments will have the ability to establish a social credit system as has China with its CBDC, a nanny with the power to allow people to make purchases based upon their performance as citizens. Have you attended a protest or been reported as having criticized the government? Well, you may not be allowed commercial travel for a period of time. Or you may not be allowed to purchase, say, petrol for your car. So the ability to live as a free person will most certainly be curtailed, in small ways initially, but becoming more draconian with time. Those who displease their governments will be punished. Those who obey will have the privilege of freedom of transaction. Now, considering all of the above... The attraction for both governments and banks is considerable. They will own their serfs to the degree that, that has never existed before. Jeff Thomas says it can be predicted that CBDCs will succeed best in the most developed countries, where people accept the concept that if they don't comply with their government, their economic lives will fall apart. In less developed countries, where there's a greater preponderance of agrarian or hand-to-mouth existence, the populace will be harder to control. Nigeria introduced its CBDC about a year ago, and to date, it has been a flop, to say the least. Only 0.5% of Nigerian residents have followed the tune of the Pied Piper and deigned to use the e-Nera. And in fact, most residents have looked to cryptos as a hedge against inflation as the Nigerian economy deteriorates. 
which probably explains why I've been getting all those emails from that uh, Nigerian prince looking for a little help in moving some money around. Yeah, you too? Okay. Now, he says, I've always looked at Mexico as the poster boy for success versus failure of CBDCs. Jeff Thomas says, in the cities where people are heavily dependent upon government for nearly everything, people will not only comply, but welcome CBDCs, as commerce will become more streamlined. It's just an app on your phone. However, Mexico has a long history of the campesinos, the peasant class, having an extreme distrust of their government and often having little or no faith in fiat currencies. They have, for millennia, turned to silver as being real money. La Casa de Modena de México, the oldest mint in the Americas, produces the Libertad, a one-ounce fine silver coin. Although the Libertad has no denomination, they're accepted as currency everywhere in Mexico. So it's likely that the campesinos will do whatever they have to do to stick to silver and avoid dealing with CBDCs. And so it's likely to go in other countries. Wherever there's great suspicion of government and wherever a large segment of the population functions largely independent of government, CBDCs are more likely to fail. However, in more prosperous countries, in particular in large cities, where people are highly dependent upon government, people will be likely not only to accept CBDCs, but even welcome them. Jeff Thomas says throughout history, whenever a major economic scam has been perpetrated upon a people, the lower classes have always risen to the challenge and created black market and or alternate currencies. And interestingly, the alternates have always risen to whatever degree is necessary to bypass the official currency. So it's therefore entirely possible that CBDCs will have their day, a period in which they will be utilized to oppress people, but ultimately will go the way of the dodo. A possible insight into the outcome might be found in Zimbabwe in 2009. The Zim dollar was in a state of hyperinflation. The Zimbabweans, particularly the poor, turned to the U.S. dollar as an alternate currency. Now, the president fought back hard, attempting to disallow the use of the U.S. dollar, But when at dinner one evening his wife advised him that it had only been possible for her to purchase the food for the meal he was eating with forbidden U.S. dollars, he formally ended the ban on U.S. dollars. So, bottom line, no economic oppression ever continues to be in force once it bites the hand of the oppressor who enforces it. Jeff Thomas says the remaining questions will be how long CBDCs will be in use and where they will be most successful and how much damage they will do until they're abandoned. I don't know the best approach here. So, you know, don't look. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not the guy to give you good financial advice here. All I can tell you is I would make sure that I had some way of storing my wealth that involved more than a digital currency. In fact, I'm, I'm really kind of becoming a believer of what my friend Albert Montoya used to tell me, and that is if you can't put your hands on it, it's not really yours. So commodities, whether that's land, whether that's tools, whether that's food, whether it's barterable goods, whether it's gold or silver. And yeah, even though, again, I know I know that uh, there's a lot of skepticism about uh, cryptocurrency. I think people should probably take a look at crypto and perhaps even hold a little just because the powers that be really would rather that you didn't. That to me is powerful incentive for why, well, then I better have some. It's funny how many how many things in my life I have simply because somebody in power said, we really don't think you should have that. Oh, well, then in that case, I must have it simply because you're trying to deny me that ability to peacefully make my own decisions. 
It's going to be curious to see how it's rolled out. I expect we'll probably see it come in response to some type of economic emergency. Now, what's that going to look like? I don't know. I just have this hunch based on what I've seen in the last three years. A big enough emergency, enough people feeling scared. That's usually when the people in power try to roll out the next draconian, you know, advancement of how can we get even more power. You and I just have to be smart enough not to buy into it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you want to subscribe to uh, to catch the podcast of this program, very, very simple. Go to my show notes or actually go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and you'll find there's an RSS feed that you can subscribe to. It'll tell you the moment a new episode drops, and then you can give a listen and see if, if there's anything of interest to you. This is, I look, I totally understand. What I talk about, even the way that I talk about it, it's just not for everybody. For some people, it's, it's just too much. This is more than they're prepared to, to hear. And that doesn't mean that they're defective in some way. It just means we're all somewhere on that journey of trying to figure out what's misinformation and what is truth. These are a little bit harder truths. These are a little, this is a little more advanced for, you know, people who are ready to wean themselves off the milk and, and start to gnawing on the meat on that bone. But the goal here is never to make you fearful. It's not to make you angry. It's to make you aware of what's going on, make sure that you have your bearings, and then hopefully provide some inspiration to stand up and make the difference you were born to make. I think that's the best that any one of us can do in this situation. And and, and I hope this doesn't sound too kooky. I'm just going to put it out there because I really sincerely believe this. I believe God has his hand on each one of us especially as we are aware of what's going on around us. And as as we have that desire or we feel that call to step up and make a difference. And by the way, it's not a call to, hey, stand up and be somebody important and, you know, have everybody fawning at your feet and telling you what a great person you are. It's more like he needs us to stand up and speak the truth, even when it's not popular, even when your voice is shaking. Just because someone needs to be the one who can stand up and be, uh, be the person who, who can shine a light. I like how Thomas Woods put it. Um, he, he talked about this a few years ago. He said, in a world of cowards, stick to your principles. In a sea of lies, tell the truth. Into the darkness, shine a light. Do those things. Be that person. Be courageous and studious and persistent. And it starts with remembering that the one person on this earth you have full power to improve is yourself. That seems like a very sound philosophy to me. And that's something that I try to approach, not just in my message to you, but also in in how I go about living my own life. All right. I have a couple articles I want to share with you, and I'm I'm just going to tell you right up front. This is some kind of scary stuff. And it's a crippling diesel shortage that is slowly heaving into view. And I know most of us, myself included, are like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to think about that. I don't have a big diesel pickup. Once upon a time I did, man, I loved that thing, still miss it. But I'm kind of glad I don't right now because uh, let's start with uh, start with Michael Snyder's article. This was published on Lou Rockwell today. A crippling shortage of diesel fuel threatens to devastate western economies in 2023. Now Michael Snyder, I believe is the creator of the Economic Collapse blog. 
So you might think, well, he's always full of bad news. But I'll tell you, as an observer, he has been very good to note and document and not just sensationalize things, but I think to really sound a sincere voice of warning. And he says, in my entire lifetime, global supplies of diesel fuel have never been tighter than they are right now. And that's really bad news because the entire economy of the Western world runs on diesel. If we suddenly had no more diesel fuel, virtually all of our trains, trucks, and ships would stop running. Needless to say, just about everything that stocks our store shelves comes to us via trains, trucks, and ships. So the fact that there's not enough diesel fuel to go around, that's a really big deal. Supplies have been declining for months, and at this point, diesel inventories have fallen so low that we only have a 25-day buffer remaining. Now, he's not just making that up. This is from a Yahoo article. The U.S. is facing a diesel crunch just as demand is surging ahead of winter with only 25 days of supply left, according to the Energy Information Administration. National Economic Council Director Brian Deese told Bloomberg TV that diesel inventories are unacceptably low and all options are on the table to bolster supply and reduce prices. And it's not just a problem here in the U.S. This is true around Europe as well. Listen to this line. The demand for diesel tends to rise as you get close to winter because the molecule that makes up diesel is very similar to the molecule that you use for heating homes in the U.S. and for winter fuels in Europe. That's according to Tom Closa, dean of U.S. oil and analysts at Oil Price Information Service. That's what he told Newsweek. The issue is global, said Closa, adding that diesel inventories around the world are the lowest they've been since 1982. And we've added 3.4 billion people in that time. You understand that? The, the population of the globe has nearly doubled since the early 1980s. So we really are in unprecedented territory. Michael Snyder says, just as I said earlier, I've never seen global supplies of diesel fuel any tighter than they are at this moment. That doesn't mean that we're necessarily about to totally run out of diesel fuel. But as supplies get tighter we are likely to increasingly witness temporary shortages that have the potential to cause immense supply chain headaches. And that's something that you and I need to be paying attention to right now. Not when, oh, wow, look, hey, they're having a hard time getting diesel. This is what we need to be thinking about right now. Diesel prices are likely to go higher than they are right now. That's going to add even more fuel to our ongoing inflation crisis because everything we buy has to be transported. And from here, I'm going to shift from Michael Snyder's article to one by Daisy Snyder. I, uh, she's from the, or Daisy Luther, rather. She's the organic prepper. What do you do? And she points to two catastrophic things that are about to happen to our supply chain starting this month. She says, if you think things are bad economically now, hang on to your halo, because we're facing a perfect storm for our supply chain within the next month, unless several things change dramatically. So it's been one thing after another ever since the COVID pandemic began to affect our supply chain back in 2020. She says, to be clear, you don't even have to believe that a pandemic existed, that the virus was serious, or even that the virus existed. That isn't what this article's about. Regardless of one's feelings, it was the trigger for an economic disaster, which has continued to snowball. Now, she says, we watched the shelves in America get cleared in a day in March of that year, and things have never been the same since. Global shipping all but shut down. The prices went up. Farmers couldn't harvest their food or get it processed and ready to be delivered in the stores, and the prices went up. Then the cost of fuel skyrocketed, and the prices went up. 
But she says, now we're facing a new challenge in what can only be described as a looming transportation collapse. Two things are slated to happen within the next month that could make what we've experienced so far look like a walk in the park. Number one, we have 25 days of diesel fuel left. Number two, Biden has failed to come to an agreement with rail workers unions and a strike could start as soon as November 19th. Now, she takes a closer look at each one of those issues since uh, Michael Snyder talked more about the uh, 25 days of fuel. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the potential rail strike. She says, this crisis was narrowly averted back in September when Biden and union representatives reached a tentative agreement. And at the time, Biden hailed it as an important win for the American people, but it looks like that win was just a temporary kicking of the can. Brotherhood of Maintenance of the of Way Employees Division has rejected the deal offered last month, putting a strike back on the table. The Washington Post reports many union members were skeptical from the start, with some telling the Washington Post that the details were opaque. The plan included a 24% pay increase by 2024, bringing the average wage to $110,000 a year and $1,000 annual bonuses for five years. It also ensured health care co-pays and deductibles would not increase. But it seemed to include just one paid sick day, even after union leaders had pushed for 15. Railroaders are discouraged and upset with working conditions and compensation and hold their employer in low regard. Railroaders do not feel valued. BMWED President Tony Cardwell said in a statement Monday announcing the vote outcome. They resent the fact that management holds no regard for their quality of life, illustrated by their stubborn reluctance to provide a higher quality of paid time off, especially for sickness. Wow. So that win wasn't so much a victory as it was a temporary reprieve, says Daisy Luther, and the decision of this union was a shock. Two of the biggest unions haven't yet voted. Their decision could doom us to a railway shutdown. The deadline to reach agreement is November 19th. So what happens in the event of a rail strike? Well, had the national rail strike become a reality, Edward Siegel of Forbes said, the labor stoppage would have created another crisis for thousands of companies and organizations. The impact on companies, organizations, and fragile supply chains would have depended, of course, on the duration of the strike. So think about uh, all the things that you can go into the store and pick up right now today. Yeah, imagine going to the store and realizing they're not being resupplied and there's no telling when it's going to come. So the suggestion that Daisy Luther has is consider the things you truly can't get by without, whether that's medications or special foods necessary to your health, any essential item that you must have and focus your resources on those things. Okay, this isn't about wants, it's not about comforts, it's about needs. And be sure that you're clear on the difference. If we get lucky and these issues are resolved without a transportation collapse, you'll know you didn't purchase a bunch of stuff you'll never use. You got the things that were necessary. But the time to do it is now, not when everybody else starts to panic. This is The Brian Hyde Show.